AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And with David Canfield. Hi. And this is the week, the week we have been waiting for. The Telluride and the Venice Film Festivals kick off this week. As you listen to this, probably uh, everyone that I'm on the line with right now will be in some far-flung location or on their way to it. Um, Venice kicks off Wednesday of this week, so after you're listening to this episode, and then Telluride kicks off. Actually, does Telluride kick off on a Thursday or Friday? I don't know. Friday, technically, is when the screenings start. Yeah. There we go. A full Labor Day weekend experience. Um, so now we know the Telluride lineup, and we have known the Venice lineup for a while, so we'll talk about those together and what to expect from them, uh, in addition to a little bit of other festival news, because Toronto is coming a week after that. Tis the season. Um, but let's kick off with Telluride, because that's the real mystery as we spend our summers planning for the fall, basically. Um, we get hints about what might be at Telluride based on reading the tea leaves at the TIFF lineup, as we've discussed. Um, but we now have the full lineup. Um, Rebecca, you were the first one of us to get a look at it. Um, what did you see on there? What's exciting? Um, I think they've got a lot. And, you know, the festival is back to its normal length. Last year, they added an extra day. So it feels very packed for the short amount of time we have to see everything we want to see. Um, we sort of deduced the world premieres already, as you mentioned, um, and were correct. So I think the biggest ones um, from the lineup are Women Talking, the Sarah Polly film, and Empire of Light, the Sam Mendes movie that David and I are both very excited to see on the ground there. And then the other two are uh, The Wonder and Lady Chatterley's Lover are both also world premiering there. But they have a lot coming from Venice um, that I think will also be uh, some of the hottest stuff on the ground there. Yeah, David, how'd you feel looking over the lineup finally? I uh, will tell you right, always does a trio of tributes. And I was definitely struck by opening the program and immediately getting a 
big fat Sarah Polly tribute, <laughs> which excited <laughs> me very much. Uh, leaning fully into uh, this being a moment for her um, ahead yes. of Women Talking uh, premiering there. And that's going to be Friday night. So really the big kickoff to the festival. And it seems like they are very intently and um, vocally going all in on, on the movie, which is uh, exciting to see. As <laughs> we say every week, we are big Sarah Polly fans on this podcast. Um, and then the other tribute, which I thought was really interesting, was Kate Blanchett because um, it can it can be for smaller movies sometimes. Um, it's not always, you know, like Will Smith did not attend Telluride as part of the King Richard tour last year. Um, but Kate Blanchett is getting out there and she is going to make a big, big stop for Tar, uh, early stop, I should say, yeah. uh, on a long campaign season. And obviously her name has been coming up constantly in our conversations with uh, people in the know. As a Best Actress frontrunner, um, Rebecca and I have not seen the movie, but obviously on Telluride, that will be a big topic. So that, that was what stuck out to me. Yeah, we'll get we'll get a bit more to Tar and Venice uh, shortly. Yeah, I mean, last year they gave the director's tribute to Jane Campion, and I think obviously we saw her campaign just flourish after that. And so it is, I think, really exciting to see yep. Sarah Polly do it. And, and the... Actor tribute last year went to Peter Dinklage, and obviously that campaign didn't take off. But it I, that was I, a good bet, though I'd say. Yeah, Why not? And, and like he's had a, an interesting career, so obviously that was good to hear from him. But Kate is like feels like this automatic front runner, even though nobody, barely anyone has seen the movie yet. Um, so it is interesting to see that they they've also already sort of given her that spot. Yeah, the I think the Sarah Polly Jane Campion parallels feel kind of facile because you know it's like oh here we go like another female director like coming in strong to the season. Um, but they have the same press representative for this entire season, mm-hmm. which I think is a strong indication that like you might see Sarah Polly written about in the similar way to Jane Campion. She might do similar kinds of press. Like I do think those parallels are real and not just us like with two women directors who we really like. And those movies aren't. I mean, I haven't seen Women Talking, but we've read the book for the book club here. Those stories aren't entirely dissimilar in theme, you know. Yeah. Um, they're about different kind of characters, obviously, but like repression and what the violence that can lead to in isolated communities, you know, like that, that's all similar. And I think Women Talking premiering at Telluride is kind of perfect because uh, for people who haven't been, it's this tiny little town that backs up right against these huge mountains. You're very (laughs) isolated. (laughs) And I know that the book takes place in, you know, Bolivia, but like something about the the topography of Telluride, that feeling of of cloisteredness that you have at that festival, um, I think will really lend itself well with all the foreboding mountains in the distance um, to watching a movie that is about this very constricted environment. Um, it's set against the backdrop of huge rural landscape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the So the Telluride lineup also includes, you know, some titles from Cannes, like One Fine Morning, Holy Spider. Um, there's Venice stuff, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, there's some interesting documentaries in the lineup, too, that I had not heard of at all. Um, I don't know if that's because they were secret or just I hadn't been had them on my radar. Um, but there's one called The End of the World about Bennington College, um, which was the subject of a podcast called Once Upon a Time at Bennington College, uh, hosted by frequent VF contributor Lily Analik. And there's a, another former VF person, Matt Turnauer, uh, who directed it. So I think for like literary snob types who might have joined us for a book club, uh, that one might be a fun <laughs> one to look out for. I also uh, was interested in this documentary, Senior, about Robert 
Downey Sr., you yep. know, the filmmaker and obviously father of Robert Downey Jr., who died uh, in 2021. I hadn't heard about it. I don't know if it was secret. I tried to look it up and couldn't find anything on it. But um, Robert Downey Jr. is going to be at the festival. So that might be an interesting one to catch as well. Yeah. Yeah. And to your earlier point, Katie, about some of these can holdovers, it's it's always interesting to see who travels with the movie. Um, you know, in Armageddon Time, the James Gray film, you have Jeremy Strong and Anne Hathaway along with James Gray um, landing on the ground, which signals that they are coming out to support the movie ahead of release. And uh, we know Focus Features really believes in it as a potential contender. And then you have, you know, movies like Broker, the new Coretta film, uh, and... Oh, and One Fine Morning, uh, for which Leia Seydoux is traveling with me, A Handsome Love. So you're definitely getting um, a nice collection of new premieres and premieres from back in the spring um, with talent coming really from all sides. It's going to be pretty star-studded this year, just looking at it quickly. I was really glad to see that Armageddon Time was going to be there because in some ways I think that might be a kind of almost relaunch for the movie. Yeah. Um, that was, I think, appreciated at Cannes, but people weren't really sure what to make of it. I came down on the positive, more positive side than other people did. I mean, I was not alone in that, but I think it's a very timely, interesting thing um, that it sort of parallels the recent other memoir pieces that big directors have done, like Quran and, and like Spielberg will do at TIFF uh, or Belfast even. But like this one is much more critical of the era. It's sort of nostalgic for i don't even mm-hmm. know if nostalgia is the right word um so i'll just be very curious to see what an american a primarily american audience thinks of that movie because it is a primarily american story and i don't think it got quite the attention it maybe deserved at can um but we'll see maybe i'm totally wrong and and people you know uh, stateside people will be like absolutely not we reject this <laughs> and also on the can topic and this is a movie i haven't seen either but um, the record, Richard, you can weigh in. I keep wondering if we should keep a closer eye on Song Kang-ho, who's the star of Broker, um, which was such a huge hit at um, at Cannes. And obviously, he was a star of Parasite. Like, it, it feels like if that movie's going to Telluride, he's going to be in Telluride. Like, the Parasite cast's presence on that Oscar circuit was such a big part of that movie's campaign. And I wonder if he's headed for another big run like that. Could be. I mean, he's he's really good in that movie. I think I said this when, when it was at Cannes, but um, something about broker makes me a little bit nervous in terms of its politics surrounding um abortion oh interesting um and uh, i don't know that it's necessarily a an anti-abortion film but it could certainly be read that way um that does not detract from the wonderful performances the beautiful filmmaking but or maybe it does i don't know but um i'll be curious about that similarly holy spider which won the best actress prize at Cannes for zara amir ebrahimi um which is about a serial killer in iran i mean it's based on true story and um ebrahimi plays a a fictional journalist who is looking into the deaths and, and given everything that's happening not just uh you know regarding violence against women as a sort of global awareness in- initiative but like specifically with the film industry iran with um oscar farhadi coming under these you know plagiarism charges and all this stuff um i i think mm. that there could be a lot of eyes on a movie like this that is commenting quite a bit uh on gender politics sexual politics within a country um that has had a fraught relationship with those things i mean not that we haven't but in a different way uh, just looking over the lineup a bit more, there's a Louis Buñuel movie from 1953 that's in this lineup. Um, I like, I mean, David and Rebecca, you guys go to Telluride and work really hard. Um, but do you have time to just like check out some of the smaller stuff or just 
you know, look for Robert Downey Jr. on the streets of Telluride? What, what, what's the vibe going to be like? <laughs> well, you get to, you really can run into everyone in Telluride because there's like two streets that you walk. So <laughs> pa- passing Robert Downey Jr. is something that could easily happen. Um, for me, I'm bummed the festival's a day shorter because there are so many big things David and I have to see that I don't know. And I do want to catch up on a couple can titles like Broker and close. So um, I don't know if I'll get to see the sort of fun random things that I would love to to go to when some of these, you know, premieres are, the big premieres are very late at night or are going to be like five hours long with the tributes attached to them. So there's definitely not (laughs) enough time. (laughs) As long as you guys have time to go to that fun 824 party, then I think it's a successful telegram. (laughs) Yeah, I think that the other side of that is you do have studios on the ground working uh, and and bringing journalists and talent together and having these sort of unofficial kickoff events for the season. Um, A24, as you mentioned, Richard, does a very popular, more informal one, um, but I'm sure a number of these studios will be throwing parties as well. Won't say what we know yet, Um, but you do have, for example, again, a lot of Netflix films. Last year they had Individual events for, I believe, three movies, The Lost Daughter, Power of the Dog, and The Hand of God, all of which went on to Oscar nominations, and in Paradox's case, a big win. And you have, this year, a couple world premieres uh, in Chatterley's Lover and Wonder, which we really don't know a lot about, beyond that they have uh, stars that we like a lot in them, and they come from interesting directors. And, of course, Bardo, which will have premiered at Venice, but is very highly anticipated from Inuritu. So you have that. Uh, We talked about Focus, having both Tar and Armageddon Time, and and a number of other studios that have a couple seemingly significant contenders here um, who are really lining up their slates and using this as an opportunity to make that kind of introduction. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, I feel like we've talked around Tar a lot already. And Richard, you're coming to us from Venice, um, where Tar has premiered this hugely anticipated movie that, as we said, is at Telluride as well. Richard, how is Tar? 
<laughs> well, first of all, just people are wondering, I will have a next week more full coverage of White Noise and Bardo and other stuff, but I just thought the TAR deserved its own segment, <laughs> almost. Because <laughs> um, I think it is going to be one of the movies of the season. Yeah, the anticipation for this, I think, is already huge. Um, and from what you've told me, Richard, like, maybe keeping the mystery intact is is worth it? Yes. I, I, I went into the movie really having, I knew that it was about a conductor-composer, that it starred Kate Blanchett, and that it was Todd Field's first film uh, in 16 years. His last one was Little Children, um, and before that he did in, in the bedroom. So this great filmmaker went away for a long time and then came back with this. Um, so I'm reluctant to talk about what the movie is about. And, you know, that will be contained in my review, which will be online when you're listening to this. Um, but I will say generally that in the time that he's been away, Todd Field has clearly not uh, been just sitting idle. He has been listening and watching and paying a lot of attention to shifts in culture, especially in the last few years. And Tar is very responsive to those things in, a, in sort of a bold and really engrossing way. You know, if people want to stop listening now, they don't want to know anything about Tar, they can and skip ahead or something. But uh, for those who do want to hear it, uh, it is kind of a Me Too movie um, with the accused at the center. Um, so Blanchett is not playing a good person, a fascinating, brilliant person, uh, but not a good person, which makes the the downfall or the reckoning that comes in the film that much more, um, I think, powerful because you have spent the first part of the film being a little afraid of this person's genius, awed by it, um, and uh, maybe a little bit put off by her pretension and the pretension of those people who are kind of, you know, kissing her ring around her. But um, you're you're invested in her as an as an entity. He Todd Field really crafts a very credible person. I mean, there, she does an onstage chat with Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker. Like, you hear her talking to Alec Baldwin on a podcast. What like, it's a cameo. Ve- what a set of cameos, really. <laughs> it's it's really like, he, he really went in on making this a very credible mega celebrity in the high art world. Well, she's, um, an e- she's an EGOT winner, right? She's an EGOT winner, yeah. Um, they don't say for what, but I think we can we can kind of make stuff up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was joking with a friend that she won an EGOT for, or her Oscar for writing the score to a J.K. Rowling biopic. But, because um, <laughs> she's <laughs> deeply problematic. Um, but uh, it's just, it, you know, it's it's a really shrewd piece of storytelling. And the, the, the filmmaking itself is beautiful, the production design, the score. Um, and then you have Blanchett, who is just, I think, doing some of the best work of her career. And I think, fascinatingly and, and hearteningly, she seems to have shaken off a lot of the Blue Jasmine Blanche Dubois stuff that was kind of, I think, kind of trailing her for a long time. She couldn't really kind of shed that. There's still a little bit of that haughtiness, that sort of, um, you know, she, every room she enters is is hers kind of thing, but it's used to a different effect in this movie. And um, it's really exciting to watch. Yeah, I had been thinking about her Nightmare Alley, which, like, as a movie I didn't like all that much. I didn't like her all that much in it. Like, that character just felt so, like stagey um but i think i hadn't thought about that blanche Bois thing you said richard um but it's just it's nice to see someone who you know is great turn in a performance that is like kind of iffy but then turn around and be like no no no, no i still am incredibly powerful which is what it sounds like tar is doing yes and todd field has said previous you know prior to the festival in an interview um that the project wouldn't have happened without Kate blanchett it was written for her it was meant for her and you feel the full ardency of that casting and that collaboration throughout this long, almost three-hour film. You know, um, there's just, they're, they're so in sync. And I know that people will probably have, will take issue with the fact that it's a Me Too story, but but it's a woman who's doing the, the bad things. Um, and that a straight man is making this movie about a powerful and um, somewhat sinister queer woman. Um, but 
I think because Field worked so closely with Blanchett on the project that it, I, I think it, it, it transcends some of those concerns um, and becomes a really damning, fascinating, uh, and also brutally funny movie about the kind of, I think I said in my review, like the kind of the end of idolatry, like the end of, of, of pure unquestioning celebrity worship, you know, which is something that we have had in the real world, you know, like, mm-hmm. like milkshake duck and like uh, that, that Tumblr, your fave is problematic. Like that, that kind of pick, pick, picking at, at people's behavior and auditing their, their morals or whatever. Um, this is a much more glaring example where it's obviously something bad has happened, but um you know, I think that Blanchett is bringing as much to the project as Field is. Um, so it's it's kind of a perfect um, duo, a duet. You know, in her VFATIA story, Kate Blanchett said the film was originally conceived to be about a man, um, which, as she points out, I think is correct. Uh, because it's about a woman, it allows you to enter a more neutral space in which you can examine not the person but the system, um, which is very intriguing to me. Yeah, mm. and I think it, it lives up to that, absolutely. Um, maybe I got my details about the origin of the project wrong, but I, well, I, I know that Todd Field said... I think she closely with him on it, yeah. Todd Field did say at some point this was only Blanchett, you know, a certain part of the process. So, so yeah, all that overhype uh, <laughs> being done, um, it's definitely one of the standout films of the year that I've seen, um, and I think that... I think the rest, you know, pretty much everyone listening to this hopefully will be equally blown away because I just... It floored me, and I'm, you know, it's. It, I left the theater kind of reeling. Wow, Richard, are there are there any supporting performances to watch out for? Is it like purely a Kate Blanchett? Sh- it's show? mostly the Lydia Tarr show, um, but uh, you have Nina Haas, the great Nina Haas uh, from you know Phoenix a few years ago, which is one of the best movie ending scenes of all time. Oh yeah, um, you have yes, indeed uh, Ju- uh, Julian Glover, you know, uh, the old venerable British actor. Mm-hmm. He's in there. Um, and there's a, a cellist, a real-life cellist, who is, I guess, also an actor, and, and she's quite good in the film. But it is really mostly about Blanchett um, and, and by design. And um, you really, sp- I think she's in every scene, and you are just in her... Well, you're not quite in her head. You're sort of just outside of it, which just makes the movie really interesting. David and Rebecca, when we were kind of getting the lay of the land for the season, I feel like we heard about her a lot. And my initial reaction was like, Kate Blanchett's not going to win a third Oscar. Like, she just, like, she has to. Um <laughs> But obviously, there's a lot still to see as the season goes ahead. But the this kind of review of Tar feels like exactly the kind of thing that gets you your third Oscar. Yeah, it it confirms what we've heard. Really, um, yeah. I think there's still some big unknowns for this season. Like um, the Telluride program does highlight Olivia Coleman's performance in Empire of Light, which uh, I've started to hear more and more about as people started to see it. Um, yeah, we have Till, which is. Uh, Daniel Deadweiler and what we've heard is a real breakout turn. And of course we have stuff like ev- everything everywhere all at once with Michelle Yeoh. Getting a tribute um, award at we'll TIFF def- announced this Getting week, a tribute so. award at TIFF, uh, yep. which will def- so it will definitely stick around. She's definitely going to be on the ground. But it doesn't feel like anyone is has quite the head start that Kate has, especially if the film itself is that good. Because as we've learned with the Academy, especially more recently, it, it helps to have a really strong contender around you, uh, like King Richard was for Will Smith last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's definitely the potential that Tar will alienate viewers, Academy members. Um, you know, it's it's not a movie that has any kind of righteousness in mind, you know? Um, it, it, you don't leave the theater feeling like, there's been a come up in Sora, or, or, or I mean, there has been, but you know, but like it, 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 it's a complicated. I guess it's a morally complicated movie, and um, maybe that won't feel as appealing as something that is uh, easier to embrace. But um, yeah, I mean, she's she's incredible, and she'll probably win lots of critics awards and stuff like that for this. 
I watched Little Children for the first time since 2006, probably. Um, but last week, just kind of knowing to prepare for Tar. And man, that movie is so good. <laughs> Todd Field being gone. I mean, we've all kind of thought about, like, where in the world is he? But what a absence it's been. And so good to have such a major filmmaker back. Jackie Earl Haley was robbed. <laughs> if this is what he produces after 16 years, like, maybe he should do another 16 years. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, so Richard, looking ahead to Venice, like you said, we'll talk about it more in depth. And you mentioned Bardo as a big title premiering and White Noise. What else is feeling major or potentially major to you over there? I think the big question that most people have right now is The Whale, um, the Darren Aronofsky film. Um, That is a nighttime press screening, which is sort of rare. It's usually there in the morning. And so uh, there's already kind of... clamor about, oh, are we going to be able to get into that, you know, because there's a ticketing system and all this stuff. And, you know, it, it, it feels like I just a lot of people I've spoken to who are going to be in Venice, like that's the one they're really targeting beyond these early films like Tar and White Noise. Um, and, you know, the big question there is Brendan Fraser. And can he have this huge, not just sort of movie star comeback, but like awardsy for, for a first run at that kind of campaign, which he hasn't really done in the past. Maybe there was a little for Gods and Monsters back in the day. But um, that that will be really interesting. Um, also, of course, there is the debate about its how it's depicting uh, people who are you know a different body type, uh, and if it, is it a really negative, nasty interpretation interpretation of that? Is it bad that Fraser is wearing some prosthetics? Uh, I w- I don't know until I see it, but I know it will be controversial for a variety of reasons. Well, David, you've got your first look on the whale that, as people listen to this, is up, right? That's correct. And it it does reveal that I've seen the movie. Can't say anything (laughs) about it just yet. Um, But I I do think that the movie tackles a lot of those questions head on to Richard's point. And as the first look story outlines, the play was written by someone who's had a lot of struggles with weight. Uh, It really came from a personal and I think empathetic place. And um, Brendan Fraser certainly educated himself fully on this topic and immersed himself in the process of portraying it with with that level of empathy and nuance um, that film really rarely provides um, as to what that means and how that how the film works around that uh, will remain to be seen but I think in terms of that level of sensitivity it, it was definitely there in, in the lead up to the filming to the making of the movie. Um, Richard, can you talk a little bit about the imbroglio around Blonde, which is a movie you haven't seen yet, um, but it's premiering at a weir- at a point in the festival that makes it so difficult too. Are am I reading too much into the placement of Blonde late in the Venice lineup? Is maybe not a great sign. Yeah, Blonde, Blonde is premiering on the eighth, uh, which is after a lot of people are going to be gone um, from Venice. Uh, pr- a lot of people heading to Toronto. So yeah, that could give one pause, but that's not always true of the European festivals, you know. Cannes in particular, they'll they'll hold big things till the very end. Um, like Kelly Reichardt's movie was the last day this year. Um, Venice is a little more front-loaded, so I guess there is some concern. I mean, the thing about Blonde is like, we've been talking about this movie for what feels like years, you know. Literal uh, years, It yeah. was supposed to come out in 2020. It was supposed to come out last year. It was supposed to be a Cannes this year. It wasn't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, obviously, the Netflix thing probably is what kept it away from Cannes, partly, but... You know, and then we have Ana de Armas, who was supposed to be this big breakout star because of Knives Out and Deep Water and then Blonde. It was going to, you know, be a huge 
year to 18 months for her. That got kind of delayed. The relationship with Ben Affleck came and went. Her star profile has become very complicated, which actually probably fits perfectly Mm. for uh, some (laughs) version of Marilyn Monroe's story. I I say some version because it's my understanding just from reading about the film that Blonde is more arty. It's more sort of experimental. It's based on, you know, the Joyce Carol's novel. So there is some sort of linear text that they're following. But I think there's going to be a lot of surprise in it. And uh, obviously the rumored, or maybe it's not even a rumor anymore, but the NC-17 kind of rating um, that gives people, I think, a lot of questions about the movie, maybe a little pause about where that kind of rating would come in, which might be in like sexual violence or something akin to that. So I don't know. I know that everyone is dying to see it. And a lot of people are upset that they're going to be on a plane or already back in the United States or wherever they live. Or um, in Canada. Or in Canada, so at which where it's not playing. So, <laughs> but it'll be on Netflix. I think they announced a September date for it, right? So, we'll yeah, all get. I mean, to see that's it soon. The, that's the great thing about the fall festivals, with some exceptions. Pretty much everything we're talking about, people can see in the next few months. Um, it's yeah. not like a yep. Sundance where who knows. Um, but this is this is stuff that this is the the showcase the the the, the expo for all the upcoming wares that will soon be on on shelves. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. And we should look ahead to Venice 2, to Don't Worry Darling, which is the the most discussed movie of the last week, I think, Uh, (laughs) even though most people have not seen it. Um, It's premiering at Venice. It's coming on this. I I don't know how to even possibly recap everything that's happened in the past week around this movie. Um, But uh, there's a lot of attention being paid to uh, director Olivia Wilde and Harry Styles, maybe to a lesser extent. Um, Richard, you've talked about those, you know, screaming fans after Harry Styles. Uh, What do you expect the vibes to be around this premiere after this past week of press? Oy, fraught. Uh, <laughs> I believe Olivia Olivia Wilde said in an interview that like when she was imagining this project or trying to get us financing for it, she had envisioned it as a Venice movie. Interesting. Um, so that's really setting your um, like calling your shot, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's even that much more writing on this. Um, you know, and the the screaming fans of for Harry Styles will be there, but now there might be some booze thrown in <laughs> because people are uh, upset with him about some queer baiting or whatever he's doing. Um, yeah, we talked more about that last week. Yeah, obviously all the stuff with Olivia Wilde and Shia LaBeouf and who fired who or who quit what and why and you know, or does Florence Pugh hate Olivia Wilde? <laughs> Vice versa, who knows? Uh, I, maybe all publicity is good publicity. I don't know. The movie has to stand on its own, though, you know, and uh, now that people are going with uh, knives out for it, uh, not critics, we go in neutral, hopefully, in the best possible world. But yeah, I mean, I think regardless of, of whether or not people like the movie, it will be one of the biggest premieres here for sure. And one of the kind of more talked about premieres in a long time. And yeah. Richard, I should know this, but are they forced to do like press conferences like they do in Cannes at Venice? Or there's nothing like that where they have to talk in the same room as each other if why do you ask that Rebecca (laughs) (laughs) for this movie they're in a a motorboat and then the the, the press runs alongside on the shore and just yells questions (laughs) at them Uh, no they do I think they do a formal press conference yeah yeah Um, so that will be (laughs) 
<laughs> and you know the the, the European press. Uh, is doesn't pull punches the way the U.S. does, so um, that that will be interesting. As long as someone asks Florence Pugh a question and calls her Miss Flo, that's all I'm asking for, Richard. If you can get in there, yeah. The question is, what accent do you want to hear that in? You know, <laughs> I do think our understanding is that this is because she's filming um, Dune Two in Budapest, and like she, this is the only press she'll be doing for this movie. Basically, I, I can't remember where I read that. There's been a lot written about this movie over the last while, so this is this is kind of a moment of truth. Yeah, in Variety's cover story, they noted uh, she declined an interview due to filming Dune in Budapest for the cover story on Olivia Wilde. And she's not going to tell your ride for The Wonder um, based on what the program says. So, uh, yeah, this appears to be her one pretty significant public appearance uh, for the next little while. So there will be a lot of attention on that. Yeah. I mean, we're all in some ways students of like narratives around movie releases and awards in particular. And I think that the awards feature for Don't Worry Darling is still unclear, but you know, you have to promote your movie to get it released. Is this is this an all publicity is is good publicity thing, as Richard said? Like, is there is there a master plan at work? What do you guys think? It's pretty early to tell, you know, on her part. I think, you know, not knowing anything about the film, she's someone who has definitely started to generate some chatter is giving a, a performance that will get attention Florence Pugh. in the Florence race. Pugh, you're saying. Florence Pugh, yeah. yes. The movie premiere hits theaters in September, uh, as and Blonde hits Netflix in September. It can be a bit more challenging. Of course, last year's Best Actress winner, Jessica Chastain, her movie premiered in September before she went on to win, despite the movie not getting great reviews even and not doing well at the box office. So it's certainly possible but there's just this is a movie where so much is unknown, both in terms of the actual content and the what exactly went on behind the scenes. Florence Pugh's level of interest in campaigning for it is so unknown. So it's it's a huge question mark in the whole season right now, I think. Yeah. I do feel like I've gone to see other movies because I you hear so much about the drama behind set and you're like, well, I gotta see if any of that's on the screen. I know. I so, know. And there will be people like that, I think, that will go. And I yeah. and I do think Florence is just one of those actors that delivers amazing performances in everything she does, you know? So and obviously the Harry Styles fans will be there. So I, I feel like even with all the drama, this movie has a good chance, but we do definitely have to wait and see. I'm I'm remembering um earlier this year being in a very isolated house up in the Catskill Mountains, uh, four gay guys watching a screener of Deep Water, being like, "What is this Anna de Armas Ben Affleck movie going to be?" We like scheduled an evening around <laughs> around it, and then we were like, "Oh, it's just kind of a movie. We liked it, you know. Like it, it, it didn't really live up to the uh, the press cycle surrounding it." So yeah. I wonder. I mean, Don't Worry, Darling is trying to seemingly trying to do a lot more. It seems to be a, some kind of sci fi ish thing, and so. There's probably a, a little bit more meat on its bones to, to pick apart. I mean, there was that in Deep Water too, but it ended up just being kind of a little erotic thriller, um, which I guess we kind of should have known it was because that's how it was advertised. But yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll see. I mean, I, I think it, it's fun. I, I, I imagine it's not so fun for the people involved. So we should be mindful of that. Well, that's our uh, look ahead uh, to Venice and Telluride. Uh, David and Rebecca and Richard, you guys will be in those various locations. So next week we'll have so many movies to talk about. And then looking ahead to Toronto, where I will be very, very happily. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. On Twitter, remember, follow us at HWD. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. 
Also, please sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7169. Even if we don't get to your questions on the show, I enjoy texting you guys back. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of next week's episode as we go through all of these festival titles goes to Rebecca Ford. Five hours long with the tributes attached to them. The Run Through Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are... AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter okay. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.